This is episode four and the final episode of The Order of Death. If you'd like to start at the beginning, just back up a little bit in the feed and start with episode one, A Driveway in Denver. You're listening to sounds from the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, in August of 2017. This part of the rally we're listening to is from the first night. A large number of young white men wearing khakis and carrying tiki torches marched through the University of Virginia's campus. At the statue of Thomas Jefferson at the center of campus, they encountered a much smaller group of counter-protesters and attacked them. Some of the men were affiliated with different white supremacist organizations, such as the Alt-Right, Identity Europa, and the KKK. Others simply self-identified as neo-Nazis, neo-Confederates, and white nationalists. You'll notice they're chanting a few key phrases here. You will not replace us, Jews will not replace us, and the slogan, blood and soil. This is not random anti-Semitic language. All these sayings have deep roots in white supremacist ideology and conspiracy theory. Blood and Soil is a slogan originating from Nazi Germany, while You Will Not Replace Us and Jews Will Not Replace Us comes straight from the white genocide or white replacement conspiracy theory. White replacement is the theory advanced by Aryan Nation's founder Richard Butler that the white race itself was doomed to extinction by a rising tide of color controlled and manipulated by the Jews, and that if whites didn't act out, they would be wiped out. This theory was part of the motivation behind the actions of Robert Matthews and the Order. Ostensibly, this rally was meant as a protest over the removal of Confederate statues happening across the South. But really, the main goal was to show the world the face of the newly emboldened and united white supremacist factions. The next day, the protests moved throughout Charlottesville and were met with counter-protesters, which led to some street battles, and the beating of counter-protesters like DeAndre Harris by the white supremacists. Activist Heather Heyer was killed when neo-Nazi James Alex Fields Jr. ran her over with his car as he drove into a group of counter-protesters. The fact that the language used by the Unite the Right rally in 2017 echoes the language used by Robert Matthews in the Order in the 1980s is no accident. Today, in our final episode, we follow the path from the order to the reinvigorated white supremacist movement today. This is The Order of Death. I'm Shannon Geis. And I'm Josh Madison.
After the murder of Allenberg and the subsequent death of Robert Matthews and the trial of the remaining members of the order, in the early 1990s, the federal government came down hard on many white supremacist organizations, particularly the Aryan Nations in Hayden Lake, Idaho. In an effort to infiltrate the Aryan Nations, the ATF tried to recruit a man named Randy Weaver to go inside for them. Weaver was an anti-government isolationist and held Christian identity beliefs, but he was not a member of the Aryan Nations, and Weaver was not willing to cooperate. So in August of 1992, the ATF surrounded Weaver's compound in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, in an attempt to arrest him on firearms charges. It's disputed as to who shot first, but things went sideways very quickly. Weaver's son and dog were shot, along with an ATF agent. The FBI's hostage rescue team was called in, and sniper teams surrounded the property. A sniper attempted to shoot Randy Weaver when he was outside of his house and hit him in the shoulder. Weaver ran back inside, and the sniper fired into the house, killing Weaver's wife while she was holding their baby. A standoff ensued, and after 10 days, Weaver negotiated his surrender. This was a very complex situation, and there's a lot more to it than this quick recap of events can explain. But if you'd like more, Slate has a great podcast about it called Standoff, What Happened at Ruby Ridge. Less than a year later, in the spring of 1993, the ATF attempted to raid a ranch in Waco, Texas, of a religious sect known as the Branch Davidians and led by a man named David Koresh. The ATF was trying to execute a search warrant for illegal weapons and arrest warrants for Koresh and some of the other members of his church. And here again, it's disputed as to who shot first, but a firefight broke out between church members and the ATF. Four agents and six church members were killed, the ATF pulled back, and the FBI's hostage rescue team was called in. Another standoff occurred, this time for 51 days. Now, what exactly happened during this siege and in the subsequent attack is highly disputed, and again, we can't really do the story justice here, but suffice it to say, on April 19, 1993, the FBI launched a tear gas assault on the Branch Davidian compound. In this attack, a number of buildings in the compound burned down, killing 76 church members, including David Koresh and 20 children. It's important to note that the Branch Davidians were not white supremacists, but many white supremacists and others on the far right saw the same problems with Waco that they had with Ruby Ridge. Namely, that there was now violent government persecution for their beliefs and for their ownership of guns. One person in particular who felt he saw this happening was a young man named Timothy McVeigh. He traveled to Waco, paying his way by selling racist and anti-government bumper stickers and copies of the book The Turner Diaries, the same book that Robert Matthews found inspiration in. In The Turner Diaries, McVeigh saw both the answer to the problem of government overreach and a way to usher in the future the book described. Here's Mark Pitcavage, a senior research fellow at the ADL. A lot of people believe that Timothy McVeigh who was a huge admirer of the Turner Diaries and not only read them repeatedly, but really tried to get other people to read them all the time um, and even sold or gave away copies to other people, um, that his decision to use a truck bomb to attack the uh, federal building in Oklahoma City in 1995 was inspired by the Turner Diaries. On April 19, 1995, two years to the day of the siege on the Branch Davidian compound, 
Timothy McVeigh drove a yellow Ryder truck up to the entrance of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. He lit the fuse to an ammonium nitrate bomb that he had constructed with his accomplice, Terry Nichols, and walked away. Two minutes later, the bomb exploded, killing 168 people, including 19 children. It was, and still is, the single largest domestic terrorist attack in United States history. Initially, the media reported that there might have been a connection to Middle Eastern terrorism. But Kevin Flynn, a former Rocky Mountain News reporter and current Denver City Councilman, felt an eerie similarity to what he had reported on in the 1980s. When I saw the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City go up with a truck bomb, my first thought was domestic terrorism, right-wing, survivalist uh, movement. And that's what Timothy McVeigh turned out to be. The crime seemed so similar to that of the order's planned attacks, it was hard not to wonder if McVeigh had been connected with the order. I worked that story from beginning to end, and I corresponded with McVeigh. I don't think there's any possibility that Tim McVeigh got money that was never recovered from from the order's reign of terror. Um, The timelines just don't work out. But we do know that Tim McVeigh was an ardent fan of Bob Matthews and the order and his tactics. That uh, one of the things that police found when they uh, searched his residence in Kingman, Arizona, uh, was one of the other books written on the case uh, by uh, Jim Ridgway from the Village Voice, wrote uh, Blood in the Face. And Tim McVeigh was definitely uh, a fan of, of Bob Matthews. Now, Tim McVeigh is the actualization of what people in the movement after 1984, after the order was taken down, said was the direction they had to go, which was lone wolf. You know what you need to do, just go do it. Although McVeigh was self-radicalized and acting on his own, it is easy to trace Robert Matthews and the order's influence on the Oklahoma City bombing. And after that event, the nation woke up to the fact that there was a dangerous white supremacist underground operating, one that was responsible for the deaths of dozens of people. So to express those racist and anti-government beliefs in public became somewhat taboo. But there was one place where expressing those kinds of beliefs wasn't taboo at all. In fact, it was an asset. That place was prison, where order members David Lane, Richard Scutari, Gary Yarborough, and Bruce Pierce were spending the rest of their lives. So, you know, unfortunately, the the order have had a very strong legacy within the white supremacist movement, you know, ever ever since they emerged and, you know, since they were taken apart and dismantled by the FBI. Um... All hardcore white supremacists know who the order is. They know who all the the key order members are who, you know, never dropped out of the movement or never turned state's evidence, you know, and and, and, and uh, uh, they became huge martyrs of the movement, the biggest martyrs of the modern white supremacist movement. And, and they all know Gary Yarbrough, Bruce Pierce, Richard Scutari, David Lane, above and beyond everybody else because of David Lane also coins the 14 words and other things. If you've ever seen pictures of white supremacist tattoos, in addition to the various Nazi symbology, you've probably seen the numbers 14 and 88, usually in a Gothic typeface and usually together. 
Those numbers stand for the 14 words and the 88 precepts. The 14 words are a slogan David Lane made up regarding the conspiracy theory of white genocide and his fear of an impending loss of white dominance. Lane and his wife started a printing press called 14 Words Press, where, among other racist tracts, he would disseminate the 88 precepts. The 88 Precepts is a manifesto Lane wrote that was an expansion of the ideas put forward in the 14 words. In it, he outlines his ideas about white replacement theory, his adherence to a neo-paganistic religion he co-founded, called Wotanism, and his directives for securing an all-white ethnostate and spreading propaganda. The 88 in the title refers to not only the number of precepts contained in the book, but also a veiled reference to the phrase Heil Hitler, as H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. All of this may seem sort of esoteric and even a little ridiculous, but white supremacists of all stripes take these ideas very seriously. In 2008, two neo-Nazis hatched a foiled plot to kill 88 people and behead 14 of them, including Barack Obama, who was running for president at the time. And more recently, the 2015 church shooting in Charleston was inspired in part by the 14 words along with the shooting at the Sikh Temple in Wisconsin in 2012, the Pittsburgh Synagogue shooting in 2018, and even the mosque shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand in the spring of this year. And all these murders occurred after David Lane's death in prison in 2007. We've talked about the importance of the Turner Diaries and of Richard Butler of the Aryan Nations in terms of their impact on the white supremacist movement. But as time went on, as was perhaps inevitable, new stars rose in their place. And these new voices name-check Lane's ideas in some fashion by either directly quoting the 14 words or simply just saying or displaying the numbers 1488 as a kind of signal to other like-minded individuals. And even without quoting the 14 words directly, the idea of white replacement has entered into the far-right lexicon and even leached its way into more mainstream right-wing figures' beliefs. And in this way, the surviving members of the order went on to have an outsized influence in the white supremacist movement, perhaps even more than they could have ever thought possible. The order's influence on white supremacist movements has not waned over the last 30 years. However, the ways in which people may become acquainted with their message have changed. Mark Pitcavage. One is more likely to be recruited into the white supremacist movement today by someone that they already know, a sibling, a friend, a coworker, a relative, a, a, a partner, um, then, then through some other more indirect means of recruitment, um, just as was true um, in the 1980s. And just as in the 1980s, someone like Robert Matthews, who was really willing to to press the flesh and personally reach out and try and get people involved with the white supremacist movement. Um, people like that today um, are going to be, you know, among the most uh, effective recruiters. Uh, what's a little bit different is the environment for indirect recruiting. In the 1980s, the environment for indirect recruiting um, was the, um, White supremacist, you know, white supremacist underground publications, flyers, pamphlets, tracts, you know, generally print publications. Um, by the 1980s, you also have VHS videotapes and uh, audio cassette tapes as well. Um, you know, seminars, meetings. 
it's much easier with the internet to to just randomly come across that stuff for a variety of reasons and because of that fact um you know and because you can do that from the comfort of your own home and you don't actually have to go out looking for it right um you know there are a lot more people whose initial exposure is through something they saw on the internet now again i want to stress personal connections are still more important but indirect connections to the internet has become a very powerful secondary channel and the fact is um that there were a lot of people in the 80s and 90s who might have had you know or certainly were racist or bigoted or prejudiced in some way and might have been prime recruitment for white supremacists maybe even had white supremacist leanings um but didn't know anybody else who who was and when they would clumsily try to broach their ideas to a friend or a coworker, or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whomever, they would be shot down. And so they learned to keep their mouth shut because um, they were just, they didn't know anybody else who believed the same things. And so they were just too timid to, to go off on their own and be some, you know, white supremacist on their own. Um, but nowadays anybody can go online and easily find like-minded people easily find hundreds even thousands of people who believe the same sorts of things and so you're not alone you're not isolated somehow you're part of a community of like-minded people and they may not live in your neighborhood they may not live near your, you but they're there and they can interact with you and communicate with you and support you and reinforce your ideas and now all of a sudden you're not an isolated person with some thoughts and ideas that nobody else likes now you're part of a movement and whether you choose to interact or socialize or become a, an integrated part of the movement or whether you just imbibe the ideas of the movement and then go off and do something on your own like Dylan Roof, um, nevertheless, you know, it can, it can um, motivate you. And so we have seen a rise in these lone wolf style of attacks across the country over the last few years. Many of the shooters who have committed mass shootings in the last few years have cited white supremacist texts in their manifestos. Many of these shooters have been radicalized through propaganda they've found on the internet. Separatist movements haven't entirely disappeared either, but rather have changed their focus. Many aren't outright white supremacist groups. Instead, they focus on limiting the control of the federal government, such as the Patriot Movement in the Northwest. Leah Sotilli reported and hosted a podcast called Bundyville, which examines the exploits of the Bundy family and their followers. The Bundy family first gained notoriety in 2014 when they were involved in a standoff with the Bureau of Land Management over grazing their cattle on public land without a permit, arguing that the federal government did not have jurisdiction over them. Protesters outnumbered BLM agents 8 to 1. Eventually, the agents retreated. The Bundys were charged with 16 felony counts, including conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States. However, they were not convicted. They are probably best known for their occupation of the Mollier National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon in 2016. The occupation ended after 24 days when the FBI stopped the group's leader, Eamon Bundy, at a traffic stop. Another vehicle in their convoy fled, and that vehicle was eventually stopped by a roadblock and Lavoy Finicum was shot and killed by the Oregon State Patrol. 
In the second season of Bundyville, Satilli explores the roots of this Patriot movement and spent time in the same part of Washington State where the order had begun. In the second season of Bundyville, we spend a lot of time in Stevens County, Washington. And the, the reason we do that is because um, it has been home to several Christian identity churches over time. You know, the order was born out of Christian identity ideas. Um, Christian identity was something that was shopped nearby at the Aryan Nations compound in North Idaho. So we spend time in Stevens County because it has this long history of people believing and want and pushing the idea of white American bastion. Um, a lot of times people who went to these churches. Um, you know, I lived in eastern Washington for 14 years and... I don't think I ever heard anyone say anything about, you know, about these ideas that we're talking about. But I think that, that what's interesting to me is that this idea of like, um, like we'll recognize evil when it rears its head again, especially in that region. I, I think, you know, this was an area where in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, there used to be Nazi parades, you know, people flying swastika flags walking down the street when the Aryan Nations was around. And people really came out in droves and resisted that in an area that's known to be extremely conservative. These ideas still have a surprising amount of traction in this section of eastern Washington, Idaho, and Montana. In fact, the state representative for the 4th District of Washington is a man named Matt Shea, who is linked to the Christian identity movement and has pushed for parts of eastern Washington and eastern Oregon to split off into a 51st state called Liberty. He has been in office since 2008. And his time in office has been, you know, sprinkled with controversy after controversy based on the things he believes. So so number one, Matt Shea is a conspiracy theorist. Um, you know, he's gotten on Infowars. He talks about FEMA camps. You know, his belief that the federal government is setting up camps to imprison Americans you know, he's out and proud about that. Um, you know, he's had all kinds of sort of these strange incidents where, you know, uh, he had a road rage incident where he allegedly pulled a gun on another driver, a gun that was not registered. Um, we have uh, him at a, a Mexican restaurant in Spokane Valley talking about military tactics in such a way that a woman sitting at the next table over, took a picture and sent it to the police because she thought she was hearing terrorists planning some sort of an attack, and it turned out to be her state representative. Her state representative having a discussion openly with the leader and founder of the Oath Keepers Militia, um, which is a known anti-government extremist group with racist ideas. So, so Shay has always kind of been in cahoots with folks in the Patriot movement who, who believe these things. But I think it's been recently as he has pushed harder and harder each time he's elected for this new state um, that would be in this, you know, geographically white American bastion area. Um, but he's also, you know, founded a local chapter of an anti-Muslim hate group called Act for America. Um, and he's very proud about that. Um, he says all kinds of anti-Muslim ideas. Uh, he often will say, no, 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 I'm not a white supremacist. I'm not a racist. I have a black friend, you know, who just so happens to live at this um, historically Christian identity religious community in Stevens County. So so I think that um, he he also will talk about his service and his 
um, making friends with Iraqis when he was abroad. Um, but he sort of touts these stories and, and, but, but he, his, his, his ideas and his actions never back up that he's not a racist, if that makes any sense. I mean, you think about Matthews, you know, arming up for war. I mean, Shea has stood on stages around the Northwest telling people, I am a politician and I am telling you, the society will collapse. And when it does, it'll be an opportunity for us Christians who are ready. And so you should arm up for war, right? That sounds like something Matthews would have said. Matt Shea has come under fire multiple times for his extremist views and actions, but he continues to be reelected to the Washington State Legislature. And the state Republican Party has not completely cast him out. But Shea did lose a leadership position in the State House last year after admitting he distributed a manifesto that called for killing non Christian males that don't follow biblical law. So, although modern groups may not look exactly like the Silent Brotherhood, it's hard not to see the parallels between what they were trying to accomplish and the ideas of some of these modern groups and individuals. For Kevin Flynn, the similarities between today and the environment that bred the order are striking. But I do think that the atmosphere we're seeing today is very similar to the sort of the uh, petri dish that we saw in the, in the early 80s when the order s- sprang up. Um, I hear a lot of the same things out there and it's much more easily spread uh, because of the internet, Facebook, social media, you name it. I had really thought that after the order was broken up, even though the guys in the order thought that they would be, they were, they were, they were the first wave to hit the beach, and they would be sacrificed. They fully expected that they'd end up dead or in prison, but that it would start something that would eventually lead to their goal of, of separatism. And so I'm hearing those same things now. And I don't know if there's another Bob Matthews out there who's, who's reading a supplement in a Sunday paper about Charlottesville and who, are, who were those people. And, uh, you know, the Proud Boys, who are they? And, and getting, uh, getting turned on to that, like Bob Matthews was turned on to the John Birch Society. Uh, there might be some young kid out there right now who's reading that. And, and that's kind of scary uh, because it's... There's a, a lot more kids who can pick up that kind of stuff today than there were in 1985, or I'm sorry, in 1964, when Bob Matthews' 10-year-old boy picked up the Sunday supplement in his paper. Uh, exp- you know, thousands, tens of thousands of times more opportunity for kids to be exposed to that. And they're hearing these messages on the news every day. Those guys with the tiki torches, you know? Uh, but they, they're always there, and they germinate underground, and then they grow up again when people who are gone, uh, there's a new generation. They didn't live through that, you know. Uh, but if you haven't lived through it, you can relive it. And that's, the, you know, that's, it's cyclical. I don't think you ever stop it. How would you know? I mean, how would you know? Who's the next Bob Matthews? Thank you. 
The Order of Death was written and produced by Shannon Geis and Josh Madison. It was edited by Josh Madison. Our music this episode was from Blue Dot Sessions, and our theme song is by Matthew Simonson. Special thanks goes to Ryan Connell for starting this whole thing with me, the History Colorado Center for providing the clips of Alan Berg, Tyler and Noel from Lost Highways, and Kevin Richards for the use of his beautiful, eerie guitar music. If you want to reach out for whatever reason, visit the Order of Death. podcast.com and use the contact form there and if you enjoyed this podcast please tell a few friends and or rate and review it on itunes and finally thank you for listening